The History Channel original podcast. It's this tiny little speech, it's 272 words, yet it distilled all of the truths that he'd been thinking about, including the tragic truth that a great many brave young men on both sides killed each other to make this a better country. Lincoln took people to the past, to 1776, and the Declaration of Independence and its proposition, then to the present, to this great civil war that we are engaged in, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. Lincoln has moved to understanding and belief in what the nation could and should be, despite his own prejudices and concerns when he starts. He is wise enough to know that he has them and wise enough to know that his nation needs to move beyond them. From the History Channel, this is Making Lincoln. I'm Andre DeShields. It's July 4th, 1863. The Union has just won two major victories. General Ulysses S. Grant has captured Confederate territory in the West, and General George Meade has won an historic battle at Gettysburg. But as Doris Kearns Goodwin says, the true key to ending this war is to capture the enemy's forces after the battle is won. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. After the victory at Gettysburg, Lincoln just assumed that General Meade would be able to capture General Lee's army and the war would be over. And telegrams had been sent to him to make sure that Lee's army doesn't escape. And at first, it looks like the odds are in Meade's favor. Lee plans to escape across the Potomac River. But as his men retreat... He finds the Potomac has been swollen by incessant floods, and Lee suddenly realized he had no way to get across the river. The Army of the Potomac could close in on him here and crush him. Lincoln believes the Union is finally poised to win the war. And, as historian Alan Gelzo explains, he has put his faith in General George Meade to strike the final blow. George Meade is a cautious man, so his pursuit of Lee is careful. Meade does not arrive at Williamsport for a number of days. And when on the morning of July 14th he is finally ready to attack Lee, he finds that in the night, Lee's engineers have improvised the pontoons, the bridges, the materials. They've slipped away across the Potomac, back into Maryland, back into Virginia. And they're gone. Lincoln is outraged. Historian Caroline Janney describes the letter he writes to Meade. She says, this was your chance. This was your opportunity. You had him, and yet you failed to end this war at this moment. He never gave up the belief that war could have been ended in the summer of 1863. Ultimately, Lincoln never sends this letter. Instead, he gives Meade a second chance. 
This is not the first time a trusted general has disappointed Lincoln. Historian Barton Myers. McClellan had done this to him after Antietam. He didn't want to see Meade do it to him. He didn't want to relive this experience of so many dead Americans not buying anything with their lives. And the longer the war drags on, the more Lincoln fears losing the support of the North. General Stan McChrystal. In the North, there was initially this idea, okay, we've got to maintain the Union. For most Northerners, the war it wasn't about slavery. There was this idea among many people in the North that this is a war we shouldn't be fighting. By signing the Emancipation Proclamation, Lincoln has changed the character of the war. It is now firmly about slavery. Here's United States Army War College professor Colonel Doug Dowds. Along with this idea means that it also opens up the opportunity on January 1st, 1863, to now start to recruit African-Americans to serve in uniform, that they might fight for their own freedom. This is precisely what abolitionists like Frederick Douglass have been hoping for. Frederick Douglass has been advocating to allow free men and these now contraband enslaved men to join the army, and Lincoln agrees. So the Emancipation Proclamation actually establishes the United States colored troops. Many black men were ready to answer that call. Here's Kenneth Morris, a descendant of Frederick Douglass and co-founder of the Frederick Douglass Family Initiatives. Frederick Douglass understood that black men would fight with the power because they're fighting for their own freedom. There will be about 180,000 African-American men, free and enslaved, who will join the U.S. Army, representing about 10% of the Army. Lincoln even says that that added 10% will make the difference in the war. Unsurprisingly, this new mobilization of black troops doesn't go over well in the South. Christy Coleman of the Jamestown Yorktown Foundation explains. The fear is if we have trained black men who then have the potential to train other black men, we have insurrection. And that's how the South viewed it when they sent their response to the Emancipation Proclamation, they issued it as, you have fomented insurrection among our Negroes. Therefore, any slaves who dared do this, they were caught, were gonna be put to death. Lincoln retaliates, issuing an edict of his own against the Confederacy. Lincoln made the decision that for every black person that was captured, who was being executed, that there would be one Confederate that had been captured and would be executed. Though black men were fighting for their freedom, they're hardly treated as equals on the battlefield. They're paid less, assigned to the worst positions, and often given inadequate equipment and medical treatment. Douglas was unhappy about the mistreatment of black soldiers in the Union Army, and so he said, I'm gonna go talk to the president. Frederick Douglass travels to Washington to confront the president. He points out all these injustices, and accuses Lincoln of not enforcing his own retaliatory measure against captured Confederates. Douglas threatens to end his recruiting efforts of black men into the army. Lincoln tells Douglas, if I could get hold of the men that murdered your troops, murdered our prisoners of war, I would execute them. But I cannot take men that may not have had anything to do with this murdering of our soldiers and execute them. Douglas later writes, 
Though I was not entirely satisfied with his views, I was so well satisfied with the man and with the educating tendency of the conflict that I determined to go on with the recruiting. While the Union Army is recruiting and replenishing its forces, the people of Gettysburg decide to create a national cemetery for the fallen Union soldiers on the site of the battle. In the fall of 1863, they invite Lincoln to speak there, and he agrees. Now, Lincoln very rarely strayed outside of Washington, D.C. That he would take the trouble to come to Gettysburg to speak said a great deal about how important Gettysburg was to him as a symbol. He arrived there on the November 18th. Already the town was swollen with crowds, 10 to 15,000 people packed into this little town of no more than 2,500. A great platform had been constructed. And the next day, crowd formed a great half circle around the platform. There was music, there were choirs, the United States Marine Band played, and the master of ceremonies simply said, the President of the United States. This day and the delivery of the Gettysburg Address become one of the most indelible events of Lincoln's presidency. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on the great battlefield of that war, we have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. Lincoln took people to the past, to 1776, and the Declaration of Independence and its proposition, then to the present, to this great civil war that we are engaged in, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. And a proposition that all men are created equal, irrespective of their birth, their class, their nation, their religion, their language. Can a nation dedicated to that proposition really, really, seriously survive? And with this crucial phrase, a new birth of freedom, he was signaling not only the Emancipation Proclamation, but he seemed to be confessing a new birth of something inside of him too. A little bit like a religious rebirth. You see a Lincoln who was dragging his feet about slavery at the beginning of his presidency and was in fact promising not to touch it where it existed and was always disappointing Frederick Douglass or, or white abolitionists, is now moving pretty quickly. Historian Doris Kearns Goodwin says, Lincoln feels both pain and responsibility for the mounting death toll on both sides of the war. Lincoln is experiencing the losses on the southern side of this equation in his own family because Mary's family came from the south and her, her people were fighting on the Confederate side. Mary's sister Emily has lost her husband Ben, whom Lincoln was very close to. He was in the Confederate Army, and she comes to visit Washington in the winter of 1863. 
He's able to see what the war is doing to the Southern people, to feel that himself in a way that a lot of people in the border states did because they had families that were divided. So that empathy that he always feels for other people's points of view that's in him as a child is amplified in a way by having to experience Mary's pain when her sister comes. It just gives him an extra dimension that I think allows him to understand what's happening on all sides of the country. As 1863 unfolds, the Union Army is making swift progress in the West. We tend to think of the Civil War's decisive areas as in the East, but the West arguably was more decisive. And out of the West arose one general, Ulysses Grant. Grant was almost everything that McClellan wasn't. He was very, very aggressive. Grant believed that you had to pummel the South into submission because they had proven that they were not gonna give up. Despite Grant's aggressive tactics, the Union Army sees a bloody defeat in the fall of 1863. On the banks of the Tennessee River, the Union will lose over 16,000 men in the Battle of Chickamauga. They'll be driven back into Chattanooga. Confederate Army will advance and cut them off. To rescue that army, a responsibility is given to Ulysses S. Grant. He will counterattack and drive the Confederates back, now opening an invasion to the Deep South. Grant's ability to combine the activities of three armies together is really the last metric that Lincoln needs to go. That's the man we need to run the war. And he will bring him east in March of 1864 to be anointed the first lieutenant general of the regular army, the first since George Washington. Grant and Lincoln have an unspoken kinship. They're both incredibly practical. They quickly adapt. Ulysses S. Grant is a man who takes responsibilities and doesn't ask for any more than he can give. I think in that sense, they see the world very much the same. The idea that somebody is rebelling and gonna tear the nation apart, this Grant has no time for. Neither does Lincoln. Lincoln really appreciated the way Grant thought about war. To Grant, it wasn't a gentleman's game. The point of war was to win. Grant attaches himself to the Army of the Potomac, and at the beginning of May 1864, they fight a vicious battle in the wilderness of Spotsylvania Courthouse in Northern Virginia as Grant begins what becomes known as his Overland Campaign. This campaign will lead to weeks of fighting and bloodshed. You see some of the worst and most deadly fighting of the American Civil War, hand-to-hand -hand combat. You have utter viciousness on a level that had not been previously even seen in the Eastern Theater. 100,000 casualties roughly occurred in the span of six weeks' time between the Union and Confederate armies. Though both sides sustain enormous losses, in the end, Grant achieves his goal. The Confederate army is in retreat. Meanwhile, the presidential election of 1864 is approaching. Lincoln had hoped that the Union Army's success in the Overland Campaign would help him win votes. However, those casualty lists are going home. Voters are seeing those casualty lists. And you'd have to ask yourself, is Lincoln closer or further from winning the election? Arguably, he's further. He can't sustain these kind of casualties. The pressures that Lincoln is under in that period are enormous. He couldn't sleep at night, and his only solace was to be able to pardon soldiers. Somehow, by being able to pardon a soldier who was going to be killed or hanged for having run away from battle or having fallen asleep on picket duty, he would know the happiness that the pardon would bring to his family, and it would give the soldier a second chance to get his respect back, go back in the army, and have served his cause. Losses like the Battle of Cold Harbor in the summer of 1864 don't do much to improve morale for the Union troops. 
The two-week battle leaves almost 13,000 Union soldiers dead, wounded, or missing. It is a costly defeat. After Cold Harbor, Grant changes his approach. If he can pin Robert E. Lee down, Robert E. Lee, who can't maneuver, is not a dangerous Robert E. Lee. Now Lee understands that he had to do something to put pressure on the North. On June 13, 1864, General Robert E. Lee turns his troops north up the Shenandoah Valley toward Washington. A ring of 68 forts stands between these advancing forces and the capital. Here's author David Reynolds. It's a very, very scary moment for the North. And so Lincoln goes to Fort Stevens to inspire not only his troops, but the North that was more and more down on the war. He really could have been shot. So for Lincoln to go up there and actually expose himself reveals that old frontier guts. There was a side of Lincoln that was fearless. And then the Confederates attack and Lincoln is right in the crossfire. It's July of 1864. Lee's Confederate forces are closing in on the Capitol. To rally the troops, Lincoln has gone to the front line. It's an incredible risk. As Lincoln watches, Confederate sharpshooters attack. Bullets were whizzing by him, standing up as a very tall target and being possibly shot. It shows you his incredible courage. And that story got out, and it really inspired a lot of people at an extremely low moment in the war. Lincoln is unharmed. Washington, D.C. does not fall, but the attack leaves a shadow over the Capitol and the Union. There is anti-war sentiment growing in the North. Many Northern Democrats don't believe that the war is worth waging at all, and they certainly aren't on board with emancipation. The raid on Washington has shocked people in the North, and the Republican leaders come to Lincoln and they tell him, there's no way you're going to win this election next November unless you are willing to bring the South to peace talks on the basis of restoring the Union alone and leaving emancipation for a later time. Lincoln is getting a lot of pressure and criticism, so he calls Frederick Douglass to the White House. It is at that meeting that Douglass truly sees Lincoln's hatred of slavery, maybe for the first time. Historian Harold Holzer describes Douglass's advice. Douglas writes an elaborate plan about sending an army of kind of missionaries into the Deep South to spread the word about emancipation. Because if a Democrat wins the presidency, he will cancel the Emancipation Proclamation. The Democrat in question is a man Lincoln has tangled with before. Democratic Party nominates McClellan. Good old McClellan comes back to be his opponent in this election. And the platform of the Democratic Party is really a compromise platform. It's almost peace at any price. There's more at stake in this election than there had been in any other election up to this point. Lincoln recognizes that there's much more at stake than his political career. The future of slavery in the United States hangs in the balance. He must win his re-election. He wanted a second term. He said he wanted the second term even more than the first because it would be an endorsement of his administration and he could get to finish the job that he wanted to do. And then William Sherman takes Atlanta and suddenly the northern mood is buoyed. 
General William Tecumseh Sherman was appointed Union commander of the Western Theater just a few months before the Battle of Atlanta in 1864. Prior to that, he had served under Grant and played a key role in the Battle of Vicksburg. All summer, Sherman's troops have been pressing toward Georgia's capital, fighting bloody battles along the way. And on September 1st, they finally take Atlanta, breaking the back of the Deep South. Here's Arthur Clint Smith. The tide turns in northern public opinion, and people start to feel good about the possibilities of the war and that it might end soon. He realizes that the prospects for the northern victory at that time were much, much greater than they had been in the summer. But still, for Lincoln, it was a very anxious moment. If he loses that election, it would be much more than a personal blow. It would be a calamity for the country. And the fear is that the soldiers have loved McClellan all along and will vote for him. With Atlanta under Union control, Lincoln turns his attention to the next critical front, the Siege of St. Petersburg. St. Petersburg, Virginia, sits less than 25 miles from Richmond, the capital of the Confederacy. The city is a vital supply route for these troops, and now Grant and his men have the city surrounded. Lincoln orders Grant to do what he must to control the city. He tells him to go after Lee and chew and bite and hold on with a bulldog grip, he says. St. Petersburg is the first time black soldiers are put on the front lines. Historian and author Manisha Sinha says the bravery of these soldiers makes a deep impression on the president. Lincoln has developed a real appreciation of black people serving in the Union Army. He says, we will all remember that there were some black men with their bayonets and their steel-hearted eyes who helped mankind to preserve the Republic. All of them understand that it is their opportunity and their moment to show themselves as men worthy of freedom and citizenship, not just for themselves, but for their families. And that becomes the driving force. The stakes were very high because when the Confederacy encounters black Union Army soldiers, they don't want to treat them as prisoners of war. They want to treat them as escaped slave rebels and kill them or sell them back into slavery. Even with the support of these new troops, the Union Army is still struggling to gain the advantage in Virginia. And as fall of 1864 approaches, Grant stalemated outside of Richmond and Petersburg, and Lincoln is in doubt whether or not he can win the election. But he underestimates the loyalty of his troops. Union soldiers overwhelmingly vote for Lincoln, and they tell their families back home to do the same. Lincoln wins the election in a landslide, winning 212 electoral votes. McClellan gets just 21. And he wins with the twin goals of union and emancipation intact because of his courage that terrible summer when he thought he might lose the election but was unwilling to sacrifice emancipation in order to do so. It's a great moment. What has happened over time is that people's attitudes toward adding emancipation as a goal to the restoration of the union has increased. That's what a leader does, that's what events do, that's what movements do. They change public sentiment. And the extraordinary thing is that seven out of the ten soldiers vote for Lincoln. They know that they may be extending the war, they know they may be sacrificing their lives, but by then they believe in the cause, they believe in Lincoln, and they're willing to give their lives for the cause that they now believe in. Since taking Atlanta, 
General William Sherman, the Union commander, has been marching more than 60,000 soldiers across Georgia, headed for the Atlantic coast. He is waging war not only on the Confederacy, but on Southern morale. In his own words, Sherman's plan is to make Georgia howl, burning the homes and lands of anyone who stands in his way. Sherman's troops arrive in the coastal city of Savannah, Georgia in December. When Confederate General William Hardy realizes he's surrounded, he flees with his troops in the night. And now Lincoln must reckon with the nation he'll lead when this war is over. He worries that if the war is over, the Emancipation Proclamation, which is an executive order, may no longer be valid because he's using military necessity as his cover for doing it. And that's when he begins to champion the 13th Amendment to end slavery forever. Lincoln believed that the Founding Fathers had meant for slavery to end, but that they didn't believe that they could just end it overnight, that it was like a cancer, so widespread. You might not be able to cut it out without damaging the patient, but you can find ways to contain it. But by this time, he's not asking for the consent of the people. As Edna Green Medford explains, Lincoln understands that incremental progress will not suffice. The only way forward is to change the Constitution. He's not asking for colonization. He's not asking for anything gradual. You've got almost four million people who are enslaved, and there was nothing to prevent Southerners from reestablishing slavery in the South unless this 13th Amendment was issued. He realized that something had to be done that was permanent. And so he is determined that this amendment is going to pass Congress, and it does. He came to recognize the inconsistency that a nation conceived in liberty would have slavery. To the extent that America has any kind of standing in the world now is in part the consequence of people knowing about Lincoln and his views on slavery and his views on freedom. He has evolved in his thinking, and it's the war that has done it. Lincoln has carried the burden of the war these four years of his presidency. In photographs from the time, you can see that burden etched in his face. All these people wiped out by the war. He must write letters consoling those who had lost members of families, fathers, brothers. And all of this grinds him down. You see it in his face. The hollows of his cheeks sink more deeply in. He said at one point that there was a tired spot in him that no amount of rest could touch. And Lincoln writes a memo to himself that has become known as a meditation on the divine will. If God wills that this contest continue, it will continue. It must be divine providence forcing us to have this bitter confrontation over the future of our country. Author Mary Frances Berry says that Lincoln thought long and hard about what he would say to his people on Inauguration Day. As he prepared for the second inaugural address, he wanted to make clear to everybody that he, Lincoln, understood that the war had been a war to free the slaves and not just a war to save the Union. And he wanted to make sure that everybody understood that slavery was done forever in the country. The Almighty has his own purposes. 
Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses, which in the providence of God must needs come, but which having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives to both North and South this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came, Shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. In Lincoln's address, he tells the country this struggle has been necessary and it has been right. And he asks the question, what should America now be? What ultimately do we believe in? His consciousness of something bigger than himself and the need to recognize that a form of pain had existed in America for generations before he came along and it would not instantly be solved. I think Lincoln's vision that America could be for anyone who was willing to love her and give it a chance should be open to anybody. He predominantly meant that as white people at the beginning of the war, but by the end of the war, he had a very different point of view. I think no one was more surprised by Lincoln's transformation as Douglas was. Frederick wanted the Civil War to be a crusade to rid the country of this evil institution of slavery. And I think by the time you get to Lincoln's second inaugural address, you can hear in his words a lot of what Frederick Douglass had been fighting for and Frederick Douglass's influence over Lincoln. We can credit Frederick Douglass and the abolitionists for pushing Lincoln and not accepting his gradual ideas about how slavery should end. Douglas was there in the front row listening to Lincoln's inaugural address. There's a great photograph that shows Lincoln at the lectern, Douglas with his big hair, that's how you can recognize him, and in the balcony is, is John Wilkes Booth. As Lincoln's second term begins, the war rages on. In March of 1865, Lee's army is trapped in Petersburg. Sherman's now eating the innards out of the Confederacy. There were food shortages. The Confederate army and the civilians of the South were starving. And soon, Lincoln starts to see how this brutal war will come to an end. Lincoln's not willing to have anything less than emancipation and complete dissolution of the Confederate armies. Well, what about the Confederate officials? Let them go into exile, Lincoln says. We don't want trials, we don't want hangings. We want to reconstruct the country and we want it to be done on the basis of some peace and some generosity. A new country is about to take shape here, a country without slavery. Lincoln is convinced that to achieve his vision of peace, the South must be welcomed back into the Union, not punished. We've already fought the war. We've already determined that secession is not legal. To continue to punish the South is to continue to look back and not to look forward. He's certain that slavery should end, and he does everything in his power 
to make sure that, that happens with the passage of the 13th Amendment, but he is not quite ready to pull the trigger on equality. That he is not willing to do because he knows that that, at a time when there's been so much loss, to pull that trigger may be too much. So he starts saying, let him up easy, is what he tells Grant. And that sort of becomes the mantra, let him up easy. But that letting them up easy translated to no real accountability for these actions. On the 2nd of April, the Union Army drives Confederate forces out of Richmond and Petersburg. If ever there was a hope for the Confederacy to have its independence, it couldn't give up its capital. That was the ultimate signal in warfare of that day, that your country was lost. The Confederates are forced to evacuate Richmond and flee westward. Lincoln determines to walk the streets of Richmond because the President of the United States can walk through the streets safely of a city of the United States. It's all one country again. Once again, Lincoln's instinct is to be with his people at the center of the action. But there are buildings on fire. There's the sound of guns off in the distance. It's extremely dangerous. And people begin to figure out who he is. And it's a chilling moment because it is a group of people he means a great deal to. It is African-Americans who have lived their entire lives in Richmond as enslaved people, and they are no longer enslaved. And they gather around him, thanking him with intense emotion. And Lincoln said, I'm so happy to see all of you. You are as free as air. Liberty is your birthright. Now please use it and enjoy it. Meanwhile, the Confederate forces are in retreat. This is a relentless campaign. There's very little sleep, a lot of night marches. They are not getting rations on either side. Lee's army has been badly destroyed. Several of his generals, including one of his sons, has been taken prisoner of war. While Lee is scrambling to hold his army together, Lincoln visits his own wounded soldier. We don't have exact records of how often Lincoln visits hospitals, but there was no shortage of hospitals to visit. We live with the Civil War's wounds and the wounds it inflicts on its people decades upon decades afterwards. What a price we paid. And all of the weight of that is daily the accompaniment that walks beside Abraham Lincoln. He was making that connection with the soldiers, and somehow then they felt that he felt their pain. He understood what they were going through, and he believed in them, and his belief in them then confirmed their belief in themselves. Now, finally, we saved the Union, but a lot of blood, toil, sweat, and tears. He was relieved, greatly relieved, On the morning of April 9th, Lee's army is just west of the small village of Appomattox, Virginia. Lee thought that he only had Union cavalry in front of him. And they actually launch a battle on the morning of April 9th, and the Confederates are essentially surrounded. And so Lee will send a note to Grant acknowledging that the time has come to surrender his army. When he asks Grant, what would be your terms of surrender? Grant has an answer. Because Grant and Lincoln, they've already talked it through. Officers can keep their sidearms because Confederates brought their own horses to service and they would have to go back and start their farms. They were allowed to keep their animals. 
these were lenient surrender terms. This was the beginning of the winning of the peace. Even though Lee's was only one of the Confederate armies, it was the single biggest and most dangerous of those armies. And when Lee surrenders that army, everyone knows it's over. Peace is finally within our grasp. And that's the headlines of the newspapers. Peace, peace at last. April 9th, 1865. Finally, the Civil War comes to an end. Cannons are firing, church bells are ringing, people are celebrating in the streets. Absolute jubilation pervades the North. You can imagine the opposite reaction in the South, but Lincoln himself is absolutely giddy. Mary Todd will talk about how he just seems so free all of a sudden, and how this burden has been lifted. While slavery, yes, was abolished, and that's a wonderful thing, it did not deal with the parent issue of slavery, which is racism. And we're still dealing with racism in America today. He has not fully begun to contemplate what all of this looks like when it's done, but he's beginning to draw the voices that he needs to help him figure out what that is. After all the loss and the bloodshed, Lincoln isn't leaving his vision for Reconstruction up to Congress. He decides that it will be handled through his military. It would be an executive function rather than a legislative function so that the full control of the peace process would remain in the president's hands. He envisioned the president of the United States appointing some governors who would figure out some way to test who was loyal, and then they would ask the Congress to readmit them to the Union. White Southerners were so devoted to the racial hierarchy that they pushed back against Reconstruction from the very beginning. Others were outraged that there would be no real accountability for the carnage wrought by the South, aside from them losing their slaves, and they didn't feel like that was enough. Lincoln says that the right to vote must be extended to black men. Particularly, he said, the educated and those who had fought in the army. It was the first time that an American president had ever called for black suffrage. It was so radical a concept at that moment that someone in the audience, John Wilkes Booth, turned to one of his Confederates and said, that means Negro equality, and he didn't use the word Negro. It would be his final speech. April 14th, Lincoln woke up in a great mood, feeling probably more cheerful than he'd felt ever in his life. He went on a carriage ride with Mary, and then they get back to the White House, and there's a group of his friends who are there, and they're just leaving, but he said, no, stay, I want to talk to you. And they kept talking, and they were telling stories, and he's reading funny things. But at 8 o'clock that night, they tell him, you have to go. It had been in the newspaper that morning that he would be at the theater that night, and now he had to keep his word to the people who might come to the theater thinking that he would be there. Little did they know, John Wilkes Booth had planned a triple conspiracy to lop off the entire head of the government. The Lincolns and two friends take their seats in a private box at Ford's Theater. Grant and his wife were meant to be there with them, but they had canceled at the last minute. The curtain rises, and the play, Our American Cousin, begins. In the third act, as the audience roars with laughter, a shot rings out. John Wilkes Booth shoots the president in the back of his head with a single bullet. He slashes one of Lincoln's guests with a knife, then leaps from the box to the stage below, breaking his leg. He bellows, 
Sic semper tyrannus, thus always to tyrants. And that he flees into the night on horseback. Just think of it. For Lincoln, finally, this punishing war has come to an end. And he's able to feel a sense of the country is going to go forward. I've done my part as a leader. And he only has five days to appreciate that before he's killed. It drives me crazy. Mary accompanies her husband to the boarding house across the street when Lincoln takes his last breath. When she hears that her husband is gone, Mary Todd looks up at Ford's theater and curses it. She then retreats to the second floor of the White House and does not leave it for five weeks. Her grief is echoed around the nation. No American president had been killed in office. And the shock of the assassination was profound. It just unleashed a tremendous outpouring of grief. Lincoln's funeral is a three-week event. First, a procession in Washington that ends at the White House, where Lincoln lies in state. That's followed by a funeral service in the Capitol Rotunda. Lincoln's body then departs by train on a tour that will be attended by thousands. His coffin was carried by a new railroad car that had just been built for his use and was called the United States. If there was a chance to see the funeral train on the way back to Springfield, everybody wanted to be there. In city after city, there were crowds like Americans had never seen before. In a turn of bitter irony, the train's route retraces Lincoln's trip to Washington for his first inauguration, just four years earlier. But even as Abraham Lincoln is laid to rest, his legacy is only just beginning. People connected to him. They know where he came from, how hard that fight was. They saw a man who was a good man who became a great president. A legacy that will come to define the nation he fought to preserve. He's the living proof that Americans can rise from poverty to triumph, the promise of the American dream, which is that all men should have an equal chance in the race of life. He reminded Americans of something they were forgetting, that the Declaration of Independence is a special piece of paper. It obligates us to respect the human rights of all Americans and of all people. That's a journey that he takes by the time he is assassinated at Ford's Theater. He has moved to a much higher calling, understanding, and belief in terms of what the nation could and should be, despite his own prejudices and concerns when he starts. Lincoln's legacy was to show us that democracies can survive severe contest within, and they shall not perish from the earth. Lincoln had hoped that he could accomplish something worthy so that he would be remembered after he died. It was that hope that had powered him through his dismal childhood, his string of political failures, and the darkest days of the war, that his story would be told. It will be told for generations to come. America has to live up to the work that Lincoln started. Thank you for listening to Making Lincoln. I'm Andre DeShields. For more of the story of our 16th president, Watch the History Channel's three-part special, Abraham Lincoln. Making Lincoln is a podcast from the History Channel produced by Best Case Studios. 
For the History Channel, Jesse Katz and Jennifer Wagman are the executive producers. McKamey Lynn, supervising producer, and Julie Magruder, producer. The executive producer for Best Case Studios is Adam Pincus. Suzanne Myers is our producer. Ashley Warren is the associate producer. Galen Mullins edited and mixed this episode with assistance from James Hansen. Abraham Lincoln was originally produced by Radical Media for the History Channel. <laughs>